Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming out for the third of uh, uh, three public lectures this week given by Professor Carlos Eyre of Yale University in the Princeton Public Lecture Series. My name is Fred Appel. I'm the senior editor for religion at Princeton University Press, a co-sponsor of the uh, public lectures series with the Princeton Public Lectures Committee. Um, let me just say very quickly uh, some words about this particular endowed lecture series. Um, and those of you who have been here the last few nights, I, I apologize for the repetition. Um, tonight's um, lecture, uh, like the uh, lectures the two previous nights, um, have been given in the Spencer Trask lecture series, founded in 1891 with a gift of $10,000 from Mr. Spencer Trask of the class of 1866 of Princeton University and supplemented with an additional $10,000 grant from his estate for the purpose of securing the services of eminent men to deliver public lectures before the university on subjects of special interest. Spencer Trask was a financier, a very successful one, and one of uh, Thomas Edison's original backers. And our most recent uh, Spencer Lask lecturer this week is, of course, uh, Professor Carlos Eyre, the uh, T. Loreson Riggs, Tig, thank you, the T. Loreson Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Um, Professor Carlos Eyre uh, is author of, among other books, War Against the Idols, The Reformation of Worship, from Erasmus to Calvin, published by Cambridge University Press. From Madrid to Purgatory, The Art and Craft of Dying in 16th Century Spain. Also, the author of Jews, Christians, Muslims, A Comparative Introduction to Monotheistic Religion. Um, and another book uh, Professor Eyre has authored, a very famous one now, one for which he received the National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2003, Waiting for Snow in Havana, Confessions of a Cuban Boy, published by the Free Press in 2003. And I'm pleased to say that um, the book version of Professor Ayer's Spencer Trask Lectures will be published by Princeton University Press. So in the first um, two lectures um, of Professor Ayer's um, Lec uh, of Professor Ayer's Spencer Trask lectures. Um, Professor Ayer has given us the background to his brusque history of eternity. Um, eternity, as he um, has argued uh, in the past two nights, was no mere abstraction or metaphor in the Christian tradition, but was rather the ultimate destination for humankind. Eternity was of no less value in human interaction than money itself or, or crowns or, or thorns. Lecture one gave us um, a great background to thinking about eternity from antiquity into the medieval period. Lecture two, which we had last night, focused on the Protestant Reformation, how Protestants transformed Western conceptions of eternity, shifting attention from otherworldly concerns to earthly realities and reordering society thereby. And tonight, in Lecture 3, Professor Eyre will bring us 
into the modern period and discuss the fate of the conception of eternity in, in modern times. So please join me in welcoming once again uh, for the third of three Spencer Trask lectures, Professor Carlos Eyre. Thank you so much, Fred, and uh, thank you all for being here on the third night at 8 p.m. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you to everyone who has uh, been so nice to me during my visit, which has been absolutely delightful. Well, today, we try to come up to the present. Before I get started, let me open the, the water, just have it ready. I may have to detour through hell for a little bit and might need the water. The title of this lecture, From Eternity to Five-Year Plans, I hope speaks for itself. Eternity has been replaced by somewhat mundane concerns and, and mon concerns that uh, reflect a fairly narrow horizon. But I hope that um, we can get there without too many detours. And as I warned uh, those of you who were here the first day, uh, this lecture will be uh, more poetic than the other two. So I'll begin with poetry. In 1882, four years before her death, Emily Dickinson would write from her splendid isolation in Amherst. Those dying then knew where they went. They went to God's right hand. The hand is amputated now, and God cannot be found. Dickinson, who thought of herself, and I quote, as a sweet skeptic, whenever she chose not to call herself a druid, a cynic, or a hermetic, thus expressed her awareness of living in a now quite different from some then, when God and his eternity could be taken for granted. Belief had been replaced by doubt already by the 1880s, and a distrust of anything that the senses could not confirm was palpable. Another poem of Dickinson's. Death is a dialogue between the spirit and the dust. Dissolve, says death, the spirit. Sir, I have another trust. Death doubts it, argues from the ground. Though much of her poetry is suffused with a transcendental, even a mystical fervor, a reverent agnosticism prevails in Dickinson. Another few marvelous lines. At least, to pray is left, is left. Oh, Jesus, in the air, I know not which thy chamber is. I'm knocking everywhere. In many ways, Dickinson is one of us still, despite the fact that she was a mere modern, and we are all supposed to be postmodern. Her then is also ours, as is her now. And the aim of this final lecture is to trace the evolution of this skepticism that found voice in Dickinson 
And then to puzzle over some of the ironic twists that make every now and every then, even postmodern ones, seem as insubstantial and mystifying as eternity itself. And as we left off yesterday, I didn't have time to say that among the many institutions that were wiped out by the Reformation, an institution closely connected to the dead, was monasticism, which featured prominently in the first lecture. First thing I have to get off, forgot to, didn't have time to cover yesterday. The monks disappear. Monks who were the professionals who prayed for the living and the dead. But another outcome of the Reformation is violence, extreme violence, bloodshed everywhere. And it could be argued, and many have argued, that the flowering of doubt and skepticism that accompanied the Reformation was fertilized by a surplus of belief and a surplus of religious zealotry, and that paradoxically the excesses of faith were also engendered by an overabundance of doubt. Various historians, many historians I should say, have argued that Protestants and Catholics were very much alike, no matter how different their theology, and that they were both, in the 16th and especially in the 17th century, interested in social control. And that actually, if you look at Catholic ethics and Protestant ethics, because they're both based on the same Ten Commandments, Protestants and Catholics expect more or less the same behavior from their adherents. Experts also tell us that they were both very much alike in their obsession with hell, especially in the 17th century, when highly detailed meditations on the subject of hell flourished throughout Europe. Hellfire sermons of the sort that... uh, Theodore Rabb mentioned yesterday in the introduction, rang out in both Protestant and Catholic churches. The warning was always clear. Eternity could best be grasped, understood, in connection to sin and hell. As one Spanish Jesuit put it, watch your step. Why do you mock eternity? Why don't you fear the eternal death? Why do you love this temporal life so much? You are on the wrong track. Change your life. According to some historians, literature and sermons on hell proliferated in this period due to the common processes of what we historians now call confessionalization, social disciplining, state building, shared by Protestants and Catholics. Scaring the hell out of people, literally, was a strategy of the early modern state, not so much the church or church alone, but the state trying to build good citizens, fearful and law-abiding citizenry. Of course, with the help of the church. Whether or not this reductionist interpretation of the place of hell will stand the test of time remains to be seen, but I think it's very safe to bet, and even bet real money, that hell itself will never be easily dismissed by those who study the early modern time period. And one of the most significant devotional texts of the 17th century is one that, um, as happened with many devotional texts, was once a bestseller and then completely disappeared from view. A text by a Jesuit, Father 
Juan Eusebio Nirenberg. Yes, his parents were Austrian and he was born in Spain and had the unusual name of Juan Eusebio Nirenberg. A book entitled The Difference Between the Temporal and the Eternal with a subtitle The Crucible of Disillusionment. A treatise that was not only published repeatedly in the original Castilian Spanish, but also translated into many other languages, and I have not had the time to track this down, but I believe that even one Puritan divine cribbed a lot from Nuremberg, Jesuit though he was. Nuremberg's difference is as intensely dualistic as the tone and title suggest. The chief aim of this man, who was a naturalist and taught natural science at the Jesuit College in Madrid, is that um, the road to hell is very easy. The road to heaven is very narrow. And that when compared to eternity, this life is nothing. And we human beings are mere bags of pus, piss, and excrement. And I quote from Nuremberg. Everything that is precious on earth, everything honored and esteemed, is smoke and shadow, considering its brief duration and the eternity of that fire of the life to come. And I already gave you, the first day, a meditation from Nuremberg on eternity, for those of you that were not here. The water in the oceans is replaced by sand. Every thousand years, a bird takes away one grain. By the time the process is over, How does that compare to eternity? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because any amount of time compared to eternity is as nothing. Well, Nuremberg has a very real hell. uh, Well, I can't encourage all of you to read the difference between the temporal and the eternal because it's only available in Spanish uh, in most American libraries. But uh, it really is worth reading if you feel like getting depressed you feel too happy, just pick up this book by Nirenberg. He describes hell in lurid detail, but this is a very modern hell, too, because after describing all the physical punishments in hell, he describes the spiritual and mental ones. And um, he claims that one's own memory will become one's worst and cruelest torturer in hell. And one will relive sequential earthly time for eternity, regretting everything one has done. And I have a paragraph here from Nirenberg, a short paragraph. If I were to read it to you, it would take probably about 10 minutes, but I'll give you a a taste, a flavor. Ooh, the miserable wretch in hell will remember with great regret how many times he could have deserved heaven and how he ended up deserving hell instead. And shall say to himself, oh, how many times I could have prayed, but wasted the time on playing instead. Oh, now I'm paying for it. How many times I should have fasted, but gave in to my appetite. Now I'm paying for it. It's a litany. How many times I could have given alms, but spent the money on sin. Oh, now I'm paying for it. And so on, so forth. For a page and a half. Despite its Baroque excess, This is a very modern hell, I think, because the guilty ego torments itself forever with no psychotherapist to consult. And there's also the pit 
the fiery pit and the slimy stink hole where, as I mentioned yesterday, everyone is close together with no personal space like grapes in a wine press. And the fire shall never die, nor will you ever die, so that your torments will be everlasting. After a hundred years, after one hundred thousand million years, your torments shall be as alive and as strong as on the first day. I'll go home. (laughs) Nuremberg was a contemporary of Galileo, Descartes, Kepler, and Harvey. He was much younger than Bacon and much older than Leibniz, Locke, and Newton, but they all walked the earth at exactly the same time. Nuremberg might have lived in the 17th century, the so-called Age of Reason, the time of the scientific revolution, but he was nonetheless the very embodiment of older values that one could label as medieval. His asceticism was extreme. I'll give you a small glimpse. This is his biographer. There wasn't a single part of his body that he failed to mortify in its own way. On his arms and thighs, he wore iron cuffs and chains with sharp points. On his wrists, bristle bracelets and smaller iron chains. He would fill his shoes with hard peas and beans which dug into his feet like nails and wounded him with every step he took. Around his neck, he wore a cord made of bristle studded with barbed wire. And this he stretched across his chest and waist. He wore girdles and crosses on his chest and back, and on top of it all, a hair shirt that reached down to his knees. He was in hell already. He was in purgatory trying to shorten that band. But at the very same time that Nuremberg was busy torturing himself, others were developing the scientific method and shifting paradigms, altering the way in which the entire cosmos was perceived. And I don't need to uh, go into great detail about what Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler did. The earth was no longer the center of the universe. The earth was now a mere speck among many, adrift in a boundless expanse of nothingness, a nothingness that had once been known as heaven, the eternal abode of God. The existential axis mundi, which made human beings the ultimate end of creation, had not only shifted, but vanished, along with God's eternal realm, only to be replaced by a seemingly meaningless assemblage of gyrating objects that pointed to nothing, nothing at all beyond themselves. The gifted mathematician, inventor, boy genius, and philosopher, Blaise Pascal, gave voice to this trauma in much starker terms than almost anyone else, saying in his pensées, his unfinished defense of the Christian religion. And I quote, the eternal silence of these infinite spaces terrifies me. Nuremberg, contemporary of Locke, John Tolland, Isaac Newton, Pierre Bale, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, all men who began to deny the existence of hell itself, along with this new view of the cosmos, which they were helping to forge. 
and also men who began to argue that reason alone should govern all thinking and that reason always, always, always trumps revelation, hell began to vanish. And eternity itself became a problem. Hell was a problem. How could a just God torment his creatures forever in eternity? That doesn't seem right. Eternity itself, soon enough, comes into question. Denying that hell and the afterlife might be fictions, I mean denying that they existed and saying that they might be fictions, was also coming very close to denying the existence of the soul itself and the existence of God. And it's no surprise then that by mid-18th century, full-fledged atheists were not very hard to find at least among the educated elites, and living in a place that let them get away with it, many of them in France. By 1747, Julien Offroy de la Maitrie published a treatise entitled L'Homme Machine, Man the Machine, in which he argued that it was impossible to prove through reason the existence of anything beyond the material universe, and that eternity, God and the soul, were Irrational concepts. By 1761, Paul Heinrich Dietrich, the Baron Dolbach, a good friend of Benjamin Franklin, published a book entitled Christianity Unveiled, in which he denounced Christianity as contrary to reason and nature. In 1770, he issued even... uh, stronger attack, entitled The System of Nature, in which he denied not only the existence of God, but denounced the Judeo-Christian God as a bloodthirsty monster. And in 1794, the American revolutionary Thomas Paine summarized this entire century in which anti-Christian values had developed by saying, and I'm quoting Paine, of all the systems of religion that were ever invented, there is none more unedifying to man, more repugnant to reason, and more contradictory in itself than this thing called Christianity. Too absurd for belief, too impossible to convince, and too inconsistent for practice, it renders the heart torpid, produces atheists and fanatics. As an engine of power, it serves the purpose of despotism. As a means of wealth, the avarice of priests, but... So far as respects the good of man in general, it leads to nothing here or in the hereafter. There was a problem, however. Briefly glanced on this first lecture. How can anyone promote good behavior without the fear of some repercussion in an afterlife. And some of the great 18th century philosophers asked themselves this question. Voltaire himself <clears throat> was skeptical enough of reason to say that, quote, if God did not exist, it would be necessary for men to invent him. And what he meant by that was precisely this question of ethics. <clears throat> because, as he also said, and I quote, I do not believe that there is in the world a mayor or any official power who does not realize that 
It is necessary to put a God in their mouths, speaking of the common people, as bit and bridle. Voltaire's friend, Denis Diderot, the great encyclopedist, was less cynical and more representative of the optimism shared by many Enlightenment thinkers. For Diderot, reason itself seemed enough, and I quote, philosophy makes men more honorable than sufficient or efficacious grace. Seeing no need for God or hell, he replaced them with a very vague yet powerful entity, and I quote from Diderot. Posterity is for the philosopher what the next world is for the religious man. O posterity, O holy and sacred support of the oppressed and the unhappy, you who are just, you who are incorruptible, you who will revenge the good man and unmask the hypocrite, consoling and certain ideal, do not abandon me. A prayer to posterity. Reducing eternity to collective memory, however, uh, proved a, a hard sell, and a very hard sell. And as the 18th century progresses into the 19th, what we find is that as skepticism increases, so does Christian insistence on everything that had been taught up to then. Uh, doubt is cast on belief. Belief is expressed in even stronger terms. So what we find in the late 18th and into the 19th century are currents that work against one another. Intellectually, we have all this doubt. In concrete social terms, what we have is the increasing secularization of death itself. And what do I mean by that? Various things. But among them, the fact that the will, this legal document, wills and last testaments, stop mentioning the soul altogether. Funerals are turned over to professionals. Cemeteries get even farther away from churches and cities. And um, many historians offer all of these phenomena as conclusive proof of the de-Christianization of Europe. In North America, in this great wilderness, what do we find happening at the very same time as the Enlightenment? One example of many one can give of the way in which Christians push back against skepticism. We find the Great Awakening, the so-called Great Awakening, which some historians say now, including some of my colleagues, say never happened. Great Awakening accompanies the Enlightenment. The Second Great Awakening accompanies the Industrial Revolution. And none other than Jonathan Edwards, a Yale graduate, third president of Princeton University. You can go visit his grave over here. I'm sure you all know this. I don't need to tell you this. A contemporary of hell deniers like Dolbach, Voltaire, Diderot, Franklin, and Paine preached what is perhaps the best-known sermon on hell 
in American culture. A sermon that literally scared the hell out of his congregation, after which he swore he would never preach any such sermon because it had caused such great consternation. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And it bears to keep in mind that Edward's sermon rings out at the same time that all the hell and God deniers are giving their own sermons or praying to eternity. I I can't give this lecture without quoting from sinners in the hands of an angry God. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire, so on and so forth. People were left trembling, and by some accounts, some had what we might call nervous breakdowns. On an intellectual and spiritual level, doubt and unbelief intensified as faith also intensified. On a very practical level, an extremely practical level, the beliefs of some among the elite gradually become the dominant beliefs of Western culture. And this is accompanied at the ground level with the developments I've mentioned before, the increasing secularization of funerals, the increasing secularization of cemeteries, which in the 19th century, especially here in America, are turned into great suburban parks where when one, goes, when one goes to these cemeteries, which were then on the total outskirts of cities and now in many places are completely engulfed by cities. Uh, beautiful parks in which one went to commune with the dead as much as with nature itself because it's the here and now. Another interesting phenomenon in the 19th century as doubt and skepticism increase and the power of established churches decreases is the development of spiritualism. Belief in ghosts, belief in communication with the dead, and even belief in reincarnation make their way back into fashionable parlors. The seance, communicating with the dead, becomes immensely popular in the 19th century. And we have one, one relic of this still available in most, most toy stores, the Ouija board, through which you can communicate with the dead. We think it's a childish, harmless game, but originally this was believed to be a way of communicating with the dead. And in the 19th century, <clears throat> this, along with ghosts, affects middle class and upper middle class people uh, very, very, very intensely. None other than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes, the, the ultimate logical man of the late 19th century. He's a firm believer in ghosts and fairies. And actually, uh, Conan Doyle <clears throat> was tricked into believing in ghost photography and actually toured the world. He toured the world displaying these photographs of ghosts, including as I found out in 1901, New Haven, he practically inaugurated Woolsey Hall, our great concert hall, when he came to lecture on ghosts and showed his photograph of ghosts 
The place was packed. No one could get in, just like David Lynch last year. But ghosts, recycled lives, and suburban cemeteries were not the only byproducts of the death of eternity. That loss also gave rise to an existential dread so pervasive that it could be taken for granted. And this dread is the ether in which we still live and move and have our being. It is as inescapable and as necessary as the air we breathe. One might add that this dread, this awareness of existence is wholly ephemeral, perhaps even illusory, is the very essence of postmodernity. More poetry, Philip Larkin. But at the total emptiness forever, the sure extinction that we travel to and shall be lost in always, not to be here, not to be anywhere, and soon nothing more terrible, nothing more true, this is a special way of being afraid. No trick dispels, and so it stays just on the edge of vision, a small, unfocused blur, a standing chill. Being brave lets no one off the grave. Death is no different, wind at, than withstood. While there is no denying that belief in eternity has not yet vanished altogether, or belief in truth with a capital T, as is proven every day by suicide martyrs around the globe, there is also no denying that all who continue to believe do so with an aching awareness of the doubt that permeates their world and still reigns supreme among the cultural elite. For whom metaphysical and epistemological agnosticism remain the only unquestionable assumption as unquestionable as the assumption that all men are created equal. It is a self-evident truth. Even Stephen Hawking, perhaps the best-known scientist in the world, is not only willing to acknowledge but also to bemoan our collective lack of certainty. And I quote from A Briefer History of Time, from which I shamelessly cribbed the title for these lectures, of course. Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing, asks Hawking. Up to now, most scientists have been too occupied with the development of new theories that describe what the universe is to ask the why question. On the other hand, the people whose business it is to ask the why question, the philosophers, have not been able to keep up with the advance of scientific theories. In the 19th and 20th centuries, science became too technical and mathematical for the philosophers. Or anyone else, except for a few specialists. Philosophers reduced the scope of their inquiries so much that Wittgenstein, the most famous philosopher of the 20th century, said, and he's quoting Wittgenstein, the sole remaining task for philosophy is the analysis of language. What a come down from the great tradition of philosophy from Aristotle to Kant, exclamation point. What a come down. Oh, Kant is calling me. (laughs) Sorry about that. If the man regarded in popular culture 
as the smartest scientist of all. Quoting the man he regards as the most famous philosopher, complains about the epistemological uncertainty that surrounds us all, then that uncertainty must certainly be the most unquestionable of assumptions, as is indicated by his exclamation point and also the one that closes this sentence. I thought I turned it off. All right. But just as Enlightenment philosophes merely replaced one belief system with another, exchanging the notion of revealed truth for that of the power of human reason, so perhaps have we postmoderns exchange one certainty for another, no matter how much we might insist that the only certainty is uncertainty, as we rail against hegemonic discourses or epistemological conceits. From the most zealous to the most jaded, we architects and guardians of the collective mentality agree on one thing for sure. We are all captive to terminal temporality. Eternity is out of the question, simply because it cannot square with reason or sensory input. Eternity is the most uncertain thing that there can be. And uh, questioning eternity is perhaps the greatest certainty we can have. Ironically, this eternal abyss of nothingness, which we postmoderns have to contend with, is not all that different conceptually from those abysses that Baroque preachers and writers like Nuremberg like to evoke in order to frighten the hell out of their audiences. As every grain of sand in Nuremberg's metaphor is nothing when measured against eternity itself, so is every human life in our postmodern cosmos a nothing, nothing at all, against the infinite eternal horizon of non-being that totally engulfs us. Vladimir Nabokov knew how to express his rage very well in a very eloquent sentence at the very beginning of his memoir, Speak Memory. The cradle rocks above an abyss, and common sense tells us that our existence is but a brief crack of light between two eternities of darkness. I rebel, he says. I rebel against the state of affairs. I feel the urge to take my rebellion outside and picket nature. Over and over again, my mind has made colossal efforts to distinguish the faintest of personal glimmers of the impersonal darkness on both sides of my life. That this darkness is caused merely by walls of time separating me and my bruised fists from a free world of timelessness is a belief that I gladly share with the most gaudily painted savage. I have journeyed back and thought to remote regions where I grope for some secret outlet only to discover that the prison of time is spherical and without exits. Short of suicide, I have tried everything. But before Nabokov, our good friend Sigmund Freud, when dealing with this problem, transience as he called it, actually came up with a scientific formula. Taking a walk 
in uh, northern Italy with uh, two young friends or companions, one of them a poet. He realized that the poet was terminally depressed because the poet was thinking that all of this beauty would vanish and therefore couldn't enjoy it. So Freud started thinking after this walk and actually thought through what uh, this young poet's depression might be about. And of course, it's, uh, it's rage. It's rage, denial. Denial of what? Denial of mourning. Denial of the end that awaits everyone. But then he actually came up with a formula which I've written on the board for you. Transience value is scarcity value. Limitation in the possibility of enjoyment raises the value of the enjoyment. So therefore, enjoy life. The more transient things are, the more one-of-a-kind they are, the more you can enjoy them. So, is the glass half full or half empty? Freud's glass is half full. The poet's glass, half empty. He didn't manage to shake the poet out of his depression, by the way. Even though he told him this, he read him the formula. The poet just would not buy it. He said, it's still all going to vanish. Had he been American, he would have said, well, that sucks. So, where does this bring us? It brings us to the handout, because we must ask a question, a very obvious question. The cultural elites tend to push for terminal temporality. What do people believe? Well, uh, thankfully we have a science of polling and um, once I'm done with all this, I'm going to talk to Bob Wyth now to see if we can get a, a better kind of poll precisely on this. But here's some facts and figures from uh, polls that were taken fairly recently. I couldn't find good polls for Europe. I'm sorry, so I'm focusing on America. 90% of Americans uh, in the 2003 poll taken by um, Harris, 90% believe in God. 84% eternal afterlife. 82% heaven. Where that 2% difference is, I guess that's the plus or minus 2%. Yeah. Hell. Only 69%. The devil? 68%. Ghosts? 51%. Astrology? 31%. Reincarnation, 27%. CBS News poll in 2005 revealed the following figures. Belief in an eternal afterlife, 78%. Believe in ghosts, 48%. They have seen a ghost, 22%. Pretty much the same figures. But a more surprising one. People were asked the question, do you think science will ever prove the existence of an afterlife? 87% replied, no. And an even more shocking figure to me, I don't want to make too much of it, but it struck me as rather odd, that if when you compare polls taken in 1997, 2003, and 2004, 
Okay, in 1997, a Gallup poll revealed that 72% of Americans believed in heaven and 56% in hell. <clears throat> in 2003, suddenly, belief in heaven climbs to 82% and belief in hell to 69%. A poll in 2004, pretty similar figures. Heaven 81, hell 69. I asked myself, what happened between 1997 and 2003? Could it be September 11th? Could it be all those innocent people killed by evil men who suddenly make heaven and hell more necessary for that many more Americans? Hell might be a necessity. Perhaps it's the only thing that can make sense in some world. But in his novel, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, Milan Kundera ponders some of these issues and actually brings into play a philosopher that most people don't take very seriously, Nietzsche. And Kundera uh, meditates on Nietzsche's idea of the eternal return, the idea that uh, the cosmos is made and unmade an eternal number of times, and that we return and relive the same life over and over and over again. Kundera's reflections are, as uh, someone who's not accustomed to academic discourse might say, deep. Because he reflects on what it means for things to happen only once versus for things to happen eternally. And this is how he sums up Nietzsche's idea of the eternal return as something that's crushingly oppressive. If, in fact, we come back and we return over and over again, he says, if every second of our lives recurs an infinite number of times, we are nailed to eternity as Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross. It is a terrifying prospect. In the world of eternal return, the weight of unbearable responsibility lies heavy on every move we make. That is why Nietzsche called the idea of eternal return the heaviest of burdens. Das verste Gewicht. So where are we? With Nietzsche's eternal return, which is as frightening as Nuremberg's hell, Kundera says, with eternal return, every evil becomes eternal, as does every joy. Terrible events, such as the French Revolution, become harder to romanticize. And I quote, there is an infinite difference between a Robespierre who occurs only once in history and a Robespierre who eternally returns chopping off French heads. Without the eternal return, however, every evil, and that's the balance, if there is no eternity, not even eternal return, Kundera argues, but just if there is no eternity, every evil is ephemeral. And that can be a problem. Extenuating circumstances, 
prevent us from passing judgment on anything or anyone. And they free us from worrying about the difference between good and evil. As he says, in the sunset of dissolution, that is, in the sunset of things being ephemeral, and I quote, everything is illuminated by the aura of nostalgia, even the guillotine. So we're stuck in a postmodern hell, which is as frightening as Nirenberg's. And if we pause to ask the question, why do so many Americans believe in the afterlife? Why do they believe in it in the way they do? Why are they so inconsistent? For instance, the Gallup poll tells us that 96% of Americans are carnivores. Only 4% practice the religion of vegetarianism. However, 43% of Americans believe that pets also go to heaven. We should have a poll that asks, do only pets go to heaven? Do the animals we slaughter and eat also go to heaven? I'd be very, I'd be very curious to find out. How is such belief possible? Well, is eternal life a necessary fact? I return to this. Priceless description by Raymond Chandler in one of his last hard-boiled novels. Playback. Philip Marlowe says, and I quote, There are things that are facts in a statistical sense, on paper, on a tape recorder, in evidence, and then... There are things that are facts because they have to be facts because nothing makes any sense otherwise. Is this what we're up against? No. What is left is joking as one escape. Hence, the, uh, if you have the handout, the two cartoons from the New Yorker. One of my favorite series of cartoons by uh, Barsati, who has these um, recurring... I used to think that he drew the same picture over and over again, but... You know, Put them side by side, I realize he, you know, he actually redraws the picture. Yeah, in case you don't have it, you have a man facing uh, his final judgment. Always a bald man, too. I don't know why he picks on bald people. God is saying very sternly, uh, you picked the wrong religion, period. I'm not going to argue about it. Or the opposite one, a smiling God greets the the dead man, and says, uh, no, no, that's not a sin either. My goodness, you must have worried yourself to death. <laughs> Let's joke about it, because that's all we can do. That's all that's left for us. So, to wrap up. In conclusion, what does science tell us? The latest reports, as I, a layman, can follow them, in Discover magazine, as far as I can get. Oddly enough, some scientists are now coming up with theories that come eerily close, close to um, ancient insights about time and eternity. Terence Krauss at the Max Planck Institute of Quantum Optics in Garching, Germany, has shown through experiments that, and I quote, time may not exist as the most fundamental level of physical reality. The details escape me because he measures events in uh, attoseconds. And what is an attosecond? 
Hard to comprehend, but perhaps an analogy will, will help. 100 attoseconds are to one second as one second is to 300 million years. And he has gotten down to the lowest that he can. And um, where has he gotten? To an infinitesimally small dimension, so small that, and I quote another physicist, Simon Saunders from Oxford, and I quote, the meaning of time has become terribly problematic in contemporary physics. And I quote again, the situation is so uncomfortable that by far the best thing to do is to declare oneself an agnostic, I suppose, at least for now. You may discover even smaller units. An agnostic. Well, what about the big picture? That's the small picture. What about the big picture, the cosmos? We can take infinite comfort or infinite umbrage at the thought that Nietzsche and the Upanishads may have hit the nail on the head concerning eternal returns. Well, sort of. Very recently, right here in Princeton, Paul Steinhardt and at Cambridge, Neil Turok, two of the world's foremost theoretical cosmologists, have argued that the Big Bang that we have all come to know and love as the ultimate in principio, the one and only beginning of the universe, and the approaching big crunch we have all been told will be the end of all ends, are merely but one cycle in an eternal meta-cycle of endless expansions and contractions. I feel like a college freshman smoking dope for the first time. (laughs) Oh, gee, wow. Woo, wow. I guess I would have to say a high school freshman. This theory of a cyclic universe proposed by Steinhardt and Turok is incredibly complex. It involves uh, things that I can't even, uh, maybe some of you can, but I cannot decipher. Uh, It's the claim that our three-dimensional universe is part of a ten-dimensional brain, B-R-A-N-E. That eternal cycles of expansion and contraction are caused by collisions between our brain and a neighboring brain. Impertinent questions issue from the mere layman who has pondered eternity for too long. And I'm the impertinent. First of all, what is a brain? And why did anyone have to give it that name which can be mistaken for that thinking organ in the human body responsible for assigning names to things, sorting out homonyms, and making sense of the universe? (laughs) Beyond these brains, what? Infinite brains and universes, or just a few? Are we out there in that neighboring brain too? Or some other brain? Or are we stuck in this brain to be reconstructed and deconstructed atom by exact atom in every next cycle to relive the same exact life we have always lived over and over precisely the same way, suffering through traffic jam after recurring traffic jam on the Garden State Parkway in Hohokus forever and ever without air conditioning and no memory whatsoever of a single previous instance of the same Aeonian events 
blinking on and off in the cosmic pulse forever, like some firefly's butt on an endlessly long summer night. (laughs) Will not even one deja vu experience be for real? And doesn't an endless cycle of big bangs and crunches beg the question of origins anyway? Is it any different from the question that asks what God was doing before he created the world? A question asked of St. Augustine. His reply, most of you probably know. He was busy making hell for people who ask such a question. (laughs) So given the uncertainty with which we are faced, mind-blowing uncertainty, what are we to do? Perhaps only a postmodern turn can save us. Perhaps only a post-postmodern turn can save us. Or maybe faith, or art, the new religion, or music, or poetry. Maybe farming. Maybe all of them. Maybe none of them. Much has been lost and much continues to be lost on a personal and social level with the loss of certainty. Much has been gained, too, and much continues to be gained. Men who do not expect to cavort forever in some eternal paradise with eternal virgins in exchange for some horrific self-immolation that kills untold others in the name of the Almighty tend not to fly aircraft filled with passengers into tall, crowded buildings. But then again, Men who believe that they will suffer eternal torment for failing to love their neighbor usually shy away from doing that sort of thing too. Normally, they also avoid building extermination camps where human beings can be turned into ashes and soap very quickly by the hundreds of thousands and millions with industrial efficiency. Belief is funny that way. You never know what to expect from belief or from lack of belief either. In the face of utter extinction, perhaps in the face of eternal ennui, we can say with Tom Stoppard, as uh, he did in his play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, say, uh, eternity is a terrible thought. I mean, where is it going to end? It matters little little whether the line belongs to Rosencrantz or Guildenstern or Hamlet or to Yorick's skull. It's so clever a line, it makes no difference which character gets to blurt it out. But is there anything beyond its disingenuous ingenuity? One could argue that the pun is so hypnotically cunning, like some etching by M.C. Escher that it erases the line between certainty and uncertainty and brings you face to face with complexities that are beyond your mind. One could also argue that in our day and age, whenever we are able to tuck away our fears, all we are left with when it comes to this topic is the chance to ponder the ineffable while we keep our eye fixed solely on the here and now, vaporific as it is. 
and then decide whether or not we want to attach ourselves to anything that we can see, touch, hear, smell, which, like us, may be slated for extinction at any moment. Eternity is no longer a thought for many, much less a real possibility. At worst, it is a cruel hoax encoded in our chromosomes. For some totally random, unfathomable reason, or by the mysterious design of evolution, simply to keep us from killing ourselves and feeding our children to the wolves. At best, eternity is a feeling. The bridge between the evanescent here and now and the eternal is often but a single emotion away. But is either end of the bridge more real than the other? Only poets seem to know for sure innately. Take, for instance, one very early poem from our current National Poet Laureate, Charles Simic. Poem entitled, The Garden of Earthly Delights. Buck has a headache. Tony ate a real hot pepper. Sylvia weighs herself naked on the bathroom scale. Gary owes $800 to the Internal Revenue. Roger says poetry is the manufacture of lightning rods. Jose wants to punch his wife in the mouth. Ted's afraid of his own shadow. Ray talks to his tomato plants. Paul wants a job in the post office, selling stamps. Mary keeps smiling at herself in the mirror. And I, I piss in the sink with a feeling of eternity. Unfortunately, poets, philosophers, and novelists, shy, quirky, retiring folk, given over to introspection and the occasional drinking binge, rather than to world domination, are not the only members of society who have feelings of eternity or are affected by conceptions of it. Everyone is affected, whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not. Feelings, concepts, belief, love, and the price of oil are all equally real and sometimes equally inconvenient. As inconvenient as the self-evident truth of terminal temporality and an I who cannot fathom any now other than the one that always eludes its grasp. So I, I, an incurable chronophobiac, I prefer to sum up eternity somewhat brusquely as one always must with words left behind by William Blake. For when dealing with eternity, it is only right to let a dead man have the last word. William Blake. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Thank you all very much.
for the uh, cordless mic to come down. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I have a uh, comment. Uh, actually, uh, soliciting your comment on my comment, and then I have a question. Um, the comment that you uh, toward end you mix science into your talk, and the first part I didn't come yesterday. The first part is about the religion or associated with God. Now, no matter what scientists find out about the time, there is no. Inevitable consequences on philosophers or, on, or on, on theologians about what do they know about eternity, and vice versa. So I think that the mixing of these two is not really. Uh, it's not a very coherent mixing. Oh, it's not at all. Oh, okay. It's not coherent at all. Let me get to the microphone. Yeah, I agree with you one hundred percent. It's not coherent. But my point is that. Um, I was talking about certainty or an uncertainty, okay? And um, when we look for certainty about certain things, where do we look for it? Do we look to philosophers? Do we look to theologians? Do we look to scientists? Anywhere we look, we find uncertainty. That's my point. Okay. That's my yeah. point. It's All not right. that you know one group has the answer and the other doesn't, but simply that wherever we look, and that even among the scientists now, we're coming to theories that are remarkably close, eerily close, to ancient ideas of the cosmos. That, that was my point. And my question is, uh, and in these lectures, you uh, repeatedly qualify all your discussions uh, under the heading of a Western civilization. So um, my question is going a, a tangent. And if you step aside, step away from Western civilization, or at least a step away from monotheism. What can one say, still as a philosopher, as a, along the same line about the man's contemplating, contemplating on his place, or contemplating about his life? What can you say about the eternity? Well, this is where I am not an expert at all, and I can't speak expertly. You know, so um, that's why I stuck to the West because I know I have to admit very, very little beyond that scope. Uh, I know certain things, but I hesitate to generalize about something that I only know uh, superficially, I have to admit, compared to my colleagues who, who actually know this. So it's, it's a question of my expertise. What do I find? What I find is that you know, throughout uh, the globe at various times, uh, eternity has been a, a cultural constant in, in many, many cultures, uh, conceived of in very different ways, very differently. But nonetheless, the, uh, well, anthropologists know this, that uh, almost all cultures, as a matter of fact, what's one of the signs of, of human development is burial of the dead. And what does that mean? You know, and uh, belief in uh, some kind of continue, continued life is a constant in human history. There are places that, yeah, certainly don't have the same idea of what comes afterwards, but uh, throughout the earth, uh, you know, conceiving of what might come after life is a constant. Uh, but certainty, some cultures have more, seem to have more certainty than others, and uh, you know, look what the ancient Egyptians used to do with their concept of eternity. And they built these monuments that 
you know, are, are, are still standing thousands of years later. Um, but is our conception, whatever we have, whatever conception we have of eternity, does it have any relation to the Egyptians? Uh, I don't know. Well, not much. So uh, that's why I stuck with the West. Thank you. Um, question about the figure of Pascal, who you quoted at one at one moment. One of his that's one of the passages that I especially like about his thought. If there's someone who, in the 17th century, represents the culmination of the scientific analysis mm -hmm. of things, it's also the same individual who asks this question, who who reveals in such moving right. prose uh, things like "man is just a thinking reed" or the silence of these tremendous space, spaces. Uh, terrifies me. Do you sense something like that emerging in the same scientific discourse that you cited? That you cited? One of the other things that seemed that, that occurred in my mind was uh, the debates about string theory and the um, things that to uneducated people, might, uh, uneducated observers might seem absolutely crazy right. about right. string theory. Do you sense a same sort of anxiousness uh, sometimes when scientists talk about this? When you're cited from Hawking was very good on that, but is there more to it? Do you well, think? I I don't know if there is more to it, and you know, and, and whatever sense I get is a, a, a subjective observation because I, you know, to be honest, I have not had a serious discussion with a scientist about this. Although one one year that I was at the institute here, my next door neighbor was a mathematician, an Italian mathematician, and uh, my wife was at that point beginning a dissertation on uh, the subject of infinity and Jorge Luis Borges. So we got into a discussion of infinity, and my mathematician neighbor just kept repeating over and over again that infinity was a stupid concept, <laughs> which is beyond me. But I do sense uh, that for most of us lay people, you see, the, and Hawking is right about this, you know, only very few experts can actually understand this. For most of us lay people, we have to make a leap of faith that is just as much of a leap, perhaps more of a leap, than... Um, Others in the past had to make about heaven, hell, and purgatory. Because string theory, brains, uh, you know, pulsating universes, I have to take their word for it. In the same way that I have to take my surgeon's word for it, uh, you know, yes, I can fix this. <laughs> uh, and you have to, you know, make the leap of faith. But I don't know if there's a certain growing uneasiness among some scientists about you know, the, the meaning question, the why question, as Hawking puts it. You know, the why question, which he says is the philosopher's job, not the scientist. That's what I found all, most remarkable about his statement, that he's willing to divide the labor that way. That, and, and to pine for the day when finally someone can bring it all together, which I assume, by his definition, will have to be a scientist, because they're the only experts who actually understand. We could take perhaps one more question. There's a question in the corner. It's not really a question. I just wanted to thank you for uh, 20 some years. I've been pondering what the hell did John Lennon mean when he said 
God is a concept by which we measure our pain. And then you described Nuremberger, I believe, and I suddenly got it. Huh. <laughs> you <Okay. know? laughs> I mean, that's talk about measuring life in pain or God in pain. Apparently, Nuremberger sure did. So, thanks oh. for that. Oh. Oh, thank you for the for the comment. I, uh, by the way, I gave a paper at a, a conference on Jesuits. I was invited to a conference on Jesuits at Boston College, of course. They were celebrating how modern Jesuits were, and I gave a, a keynote speech on Nuremberg. <laughs> and um, they wouldn't publish my paper. <laughs> so, there we are. Please join me again. Thank you.